0: businesses need to think beyond today that's why adp uses data-driven insights to design hr solutions to help your business find more success tomorrow hr time talent benefits payroll adp always designing for people
1: my name is tracy ariel and i am unapologetically canadian So today, I'm really excited to speak with Lloyd Whitesell. Lloyd and I have been friends for a while, but I'm interviewing him today because of his, uh, he's got several books and a lot of, uh, he's a really interesting um, doctor at the Musicology Center at McGill. Um, Lloyd, how are you doing?
0: Doing well. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Yeah, it's awesome. I'm so happy to talk with you. Um, obviously, you're known for your um, book about Joni Mitchell, so of course we're going to talk about that. But before we do, can you talk a little bit about um, your body of work and what it has to do with identity? Because um, I was fascinated to see how many different ways you've managed to look at identity in, in a body of work that's kind of diverse.
0: <laughs> sure. Well, so um, a little bit about me. So I got started as a pianist and worked with opera singers for a while when i was younger and at some point uh i took a swerve and i went into uh academic studies so music history or musicology as it's called sometimes and then it was like well so what what do i want to do what is my intellectual path and uh first i was really interested in how does music relate to other art forms like literature because i had strong interests and I've always been a book person and so uh there's a lot of cool theory of literature and narrative and how it's all constructed and how uh you know how readers interact with books and I thought oh well there's got to be something here for music too so that was my first uh that's where I headed first was this kind of cross art and theoretical take on operas song cycles and that kind of thing but I was also uh, so as a gay person I was interested because also in the humanities at the time when I was in grad school there was a lot of uh, studies based on sexual identity sexual orientation as it impacts creative expression so that was something that I really wanted to, I thought oh I probably can say something about that and it was a challenge it was like you know there's it's gotta it can't be in a direct way you know like Uh, You can look to feminist scholarship for people trying to think, well, does does someone's experience as a woman affect the kind of books they want to write, the kind of emotions they want to express, or how they interact with the world in a creative way? Same thing with queer people. So that's my first book that I published was a collection of articles. I wrote the introduction, co-wrote it with a friend of mine from the UK, and contributed one article but it was on uh, these this question of you know the, from the perspective of so-called queer musicology so that's one aspect of identity right there that still is, is still Which book
1: was that just remind me of the title
0: the title is called queer episodes in music and modern identity so it's nineteenth, nineteenth, oh, okay. and twentieth century uh, is the period that that our contributors were looking at. Right,
1: yeah.
0: But this is still so that was oh, kind of okay. that was kind of a new field back then, and so it was really exciting to you know kind of get in uh, when things were changing because musicology, before, you know, for a long time, musicology had been pretty conservative and stiff and stodgy, <laughs> and so so there was a lot of. <laughs> A lot of back and forth within the field, you know, but from the conservative side and from the people who are trying to say, no, we can talk about all these exciting political things and identity questions as well. It's not just about the notes. Um, so maybe I'll let you get a word in edgewise. Before yeah. I-,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know I wanted you to talk about that because that is sort of the basics of, of everything, right? Because you are an academic um, you you work for McGill. you are i think you're si- assistant dean now of, of that department right of the school yeah the, school Business the
0: exact title right now is right. vice dean
1: vice dean okay so that dean. doesn't mean assistant
0: well there's associate okay. deans and then there's vice dean but we don't need to <laughs> we don't need to get into semantics so. <laughs>
1: What is a vice dean? Like why? Like why? Why is that? Because you specialize in a specific area, or like you
0: no? Know, it's what, really it's sort of like the the dean's right hand person. I mean, it actually didn't exist until last year because we're going into the bicentennial for mcgill University, and there's going to be a lot of uh, the dean was going to have to do a lot of uh, working with donors and doing traveling. Except what happened, of course. Was COVID, <laughs> so i have, i haven't been i haven't been doing you know the bicentennial support i've been doing COVID support and any but you know that's just the way it works out right
1: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah 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 well this year things have changed for almost everybody i mean that you you just got to go with the flow i mean you got to go with the flow <laughs> no one can... yeah, yeah exactly but uh, no so. It, it, what I was really interested in seeing um, it, obviously um, you also have a book called the wonderful design, which is, which is, again, how does that appeal? Like what, this was, this was more f- almost fashion rather than music, wasn't it?
0: Well, the topic is glamor in music. So I, uh, what I'm looking at there is actually film, So film musicals and Hollywood film musicals. So the nice classics with Judy Garland and Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire, uh, but also up to the present, so up to dream girls and La La Land and that kind of thing. So, but the, so this is not so much about identity as it is about style, but it's, uh, I develop a concept of glamor that applies to the visual as well as the sonic but there so many theorists when they talk about glamour are only talking about uh the look or maybe the you know maybe the material objects like what it, things are made of but there's a lot that's just in the the you can get a sense of glamour from a, a sound and so that was my challenge there was how do you talk about that and what kind of emotions can be packed into a glamorous sound and a glamorous look
1: That's interesting, because you've taken what is really a staid sort of idea. um, I mean, it's been covered in so many different ways. And then you pulled in an entire different sense and then expanded it. So can you give us a little idea of what you were basically what what do you think how do you think pe- composers do that with music I mean what it, because you're talking about mood in many ways but it's more than mood
0: yeah it's kind of yeah you're right it's in between mood it's in between emotion and technique in a way and so uh, it's like there's this idea that uh, um, that came up in a British writer he talks about structures of feeling so in other words, emotion sounds like it's just a soft thing and it's intangible and subjective. You can't really, it's hard to relate from person to person. But people in similar experiences or in, pe- in similar, similar social situations can relate to certain structures of emotion. And in a way, you can talk about glamour as structuring your feelings in a certain way. Because it's, it's, uh, waking, it's arousing uh, fantasy, arousing desires you know, so that, you know, like, here's a glimpse of paradise, you know, here, you have the illusion that you can get to it for a temporary moment. And all of the, you know, you imagine yourself being a better person, just by looking at this glossy photograph, or. Yeah. Sorry, did you want to say? something?
1: So no, I was just gonna ask you if you can give me an example, I wanted to give you ask you if you can give me an example in, in an actual specific song. Uh because you actually talk about
0: I can give you so there's one that's just from the radio, like from the forties. The Glenn Miller uh, orchestra had their classic Moonlight Serenade. Da, da 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 da. And so if you can reconstruct that in your mind or go to uh YouTube and call it up and listen to the sound of how the instru- what instruments there are, how they interact with each other, how smoothed out it all is because there's a rhythm section, but it's really smoothed out and made elegant and everything has to be so restrained. So when I was studying all this music, it was like, what's the recipe for glamor? So there has to be sensuous qualities You know, lots of gooey or excessive or extravagant textures, whether it's visual or sonic. But then there has to be restraint to balance that out because then it's not glamorous unless you are holding yourself in a restrained way or singing in a cultivated way or holding the rhythms in. So it doesn't sound too dancey. Right. And the other two, uh, the other two uh, ingredients are sophistication So you're pulling, you know, things that other people might not think of. You're aware of all these vocabularies and they might be more sophisticated rather than common. And finally, elevation, somehow it can lift you out of the everyday. And that can be just in a simple way where melodies rise up or you have choirs hovering like a cloud, but somehow it's making you feel ethereal and elevated and so hopefully if you listen to that glenn miller you, you can get all of those uh ingredients in that song but but then a, a really well-known oh, one that. a really well-known one is maybe in a surprising place it's in the wizard of oz it's in uh somewhere over the rainbow right away and if you remember oh that
1: gosh, you know,
0: you're in a real you know setting the farmyard but then Uh, Dorothy is thinking, you know, what if I could be, you know, over in that other land, and so the sounds that come out of her throat, and the sounds that the orchestra uh, call to mind, they're all glamorous, so it's very surprising, it's like it doesn't fit in that world, because she's picturing utopia for us through her singing.
1: Oh, that's an interesting uh, element as well. Um, I'll definitely put the um, Moonlight Serenite into the show notes, though, because I think that that song is, uh, it, it, it appears in so many pop, so many instances of pop culture and always in order to bring the glamour to it. So um, yeah. I, I, it's one of those songs that, although it was written in the 40s, it still has a, a really current presence.
0: Yeah, isn't that funny? It and, just, uh, uh, it's just boring. enduring. And it just, even for, you know, <laughs> those of us that weren't around, you know, it just brings, it brings up this picture <laughs> from that time.
1: Yeah, exactly. Big bands and, um, you know, yeah. uh, t- dance couples and all that kind of stuff. You know, it really does, uh, it does it, I mean, you're right, it's it sort of pinset glamour. Uh, that's a really cool. Uh, I'm very happy you spoke about that one. It's really, that's, it was, I don't know what to expect because you've done so much. I mean, I love the picture you sent me um, because uh, because you are one of the foremost academics now on Joni Mitchell because of your book took a different look at, at her in that you actually looked at her work from a musicology sense. Of sense. You actually talked about why her, how she used music in a different way to show the kinds of things that she was pushing for almost as an activist. And and, and and she did it as a composer from your point of view. Can you talk a little bit about your research in that and how it came about? Why did you, like, what made you study Joni Mitchell in the first place?
0: Well, of course I was a fan at, you know, starting as a fan. But then, um, you know, even when I was a little piano student uh, in conservatory and, uh, you know, with my roommate, we were listening to... The album blue and grooving on it and getting all you know sort of you know melancholy and uh you know because we were we were trying to learn how to be musical we were trying to learn how to be performers and here was this amazing songwriter who just projected so directly all these emotions so it was part of that kind of training but uh <clears throat> at the same time i was talking with another friend you know even back then when i was a teenager and and talking about well what how does she do that what are the chords and and this woman i don't remember if she's a flutist or what she says watch out because joni Mitchell is really modal <laughs> so it was like a way of saying that all the stuff that you've been learning in music theory class is not going to help you <laughs> Like she's not, <laughs> not doing, she's not doing the same thing that Bach, et cetera, were doing because she's doing something modal. So that sort of must have stuck in my head. And then later on, when I went into, you know, acad- academic music scholarship, then I realized, oh, wow, I want to figure out what she is actually doing. How does she get those amazing effects and what makes her distinct? What makes her different from other songwriters of her time? And then as I uh, was also getting, you know, sort of uh, engaged with feminism, then I realized, like, no one's writing about this woman. I mean, the books you could find were biographies, they were gossip, you know, they were maybe cultural studies of her impact, uh, you know, as a cultural figure. But there wasn't anything on her as a composer, as, like, what is it about her songwriting? Except you could find little things from guitarists and, more specialized magazines, you know, about her alternate tunings and uh, instruments and that kind of thing. But it was really not very much out there. And so I thought, wow, I have something to contribute here. And I'd like to just do a picture of her, what she's doing with her lyrics and music, and what are all the tools that she's exploring. And so that's what I, you know, took, uh, that was my project in that book. It's like, what are the different aspects and what you know harmony was a big thing that was one that, that's one of the very uh aspects that makes her very distinct so that was a big element but i talked about melody as well and and also her the her ability to shape shift like if you look across all her songs she takes on all these amazingly different voices from just simple souls who are just chatting, you know, or just jamming with friends to like these cutting kind of Bob Dylan-esque kind of knockdown uh, uh, satires to narratives, ballads, uh, to, you know, kind of uh, these scenario, these little vignettes of people she observed in Los Angeles. And so so there was just so much there. I just tried to do to cool. do. First, mapping out of everything that's there,
1: and did it start off as an academic paper and then turn into a, a book, or what? How did you do? How did? What's the process in terms of? Because uh, of course, I'm talking to some creative entrepreneurs. What? Uh, what did you do in terms of the publishing side? Yes, yeah, so, was it academic first?
0: It what Yeah. Well, it is from a uh, university press, so it is. You know, it's definitely. It's definitely for, uh, you know, it has its academic credentials, but uh, hopefully there's enough in there for a general audience as well. But, um, you know, I have a lot of analysis, so not everyone might know the, you know, the kind of chord uh, symbols that I use, that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, it it is definitely from the academic world. So I had a mentor in my early uh, career who helped me out and said, you know, this could really be something that you could explore. Like like I was just talking about my interest in Joni. So why don't you, he says, I'm on the board of women and music, this journal, this feminist journal. And so why don't you write an article? And so that was the first publication. And then that just led, I realized that, you know, I wanted to do the whole, you know, cover all of it, not just one aspect. So, so it was definitely through an academic path and, but but a mentor was very helpful.
1: Uh, So who was the mentor? Was that someone who's a teacher or a supervisor?
0: In my first uh, teaching job, he was a slightly older colleague who helped hire me there and, you know, who was interested in the so-called newer musicology, the newer approaches like identity approaches and, you know, uh, women's studies, et cetera. And so, he, you know, he gave me encouragement, and you know, was able. Where was to- I was at uh, the University of Virginia.
1: Ah, okay. So this was your undergraduate uh, period. No, nope, this, this a graduate is my degree? this
0: is my first teaching job.
1: Your first teaching job. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, actually, that gives me a good chance to talk about um, your path because. Um, you you haven't been in canada your whole life (laughs) you've been here quite a while now but uh can you give an idea of what um where you where you come from and what what led you here
0: sure so i'm from minnesota so canada adjacent But,
1: uh, <laughs> yeah, one of the states we sometimes think we should take on. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, so we, we would go to Canada for canoeing trips or fishing or something like that. But, uh, and actually, when I was um, in high school, I went to a, a, these summer camps, they had a, a program of camps with language where you learned languages. So I went to a French camp where you know, you go there and then you uh, are supposed to sort of start to, you know, have a feeling like you're going to a different country and you're supposed to speak French as much as possible. And the older you get, then there's, you know, the more restrictions on not speaking English. So I did this for a few years. And then the, the last year we took a road trip as part of the camp experience and came up to Quebec. So we, we you know, did a little visit to Quebec City and to Montreal back then. And little did I know I would end up here as an adult. But uh, anyway, so when I uh, finished my doctorate degree, then uh, it was, I had a hard time finding academic jobs. There's not a lot of humanities jobs. And so I had a period of seven years where I was uh, in a one-year position, you know, not knowing from one year to the next where I might end up. And I was applying all over the place and uh so i had a very traveling experience and my partner just said well i'm going to stay in minneapolis until you settle down <laughs> so <laughs> that's what
1: happened
0: <laughs> and um so i ended up getting you know my first gig at mcgill was just a one-year job but then it turned into a permanent job and i'm so happy I love being at McGill. I love my colleagues and I love being in Montreal. So I'm a Canadian citizen. I'm a dual citizen now. And so uh, it's my adopted country. And I have to say that it's been a very much saner experience in the past four years than if I would have stayed in my own original country. (laughs)
1: Oh my gosh, yes. The last four years, almost, uh, I think the last four years and 2020 will all be wiped out uh, in January in such an exciting day.
0: <laughs> yes, I know. And it it's, really, very yeah.
1: weird.
0: it's very weird looking across the border as an expatriate, you know, and feeling, oh, my family is there. What are they going through? You know, like, uh, it's it's just, uh, it's a very weird experience. Yeah. Um, but so does that, that tells you my path here.
1: <laughs> it tells me very basic about my, your path here, but it doesn't tell me about uh, your experience here. Cause you've been here, I mean, how many years have you been here? It's been a long time now.
0: It's been, uh, I've 19, known you
1: for 19 years, years. So you've, it's been more than that.
0: <laughs> yeah. 19 what? 19 years.
1: When did you come? 19 years. Oh, my gosh. So you celebrate 20 years soon. When do you celebrate? What month? Uh,
0: August, I guess. Coming up. Yeah.
1: <gasps> that's cool. Oh, my gosh. That's such a cool idea. <laughs> I didn't get a chance to tell you, to ask you a little bit about um, how your identity has changed since you've moved here. And like what um, my, my usual question is. um what kind what what's your biggest success and then what's your biggest failure so thinking about that and your your path in Canada can you talk a little bit about your experience since you've come here and 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 doing a career that's actually very difficult to follow in Canada as well I mean there's you know there's there's no doubt that in the last 20 years things have changed for people with a with a gay identity by itself but people studying i mean you're you are putting out your ideas all the time publicly mm-hmm. so can you talk a little bit about about your successes and failures on that level
0: wow that's a lot of questions all in a big <laughs> i have to try big and
1: question it is.
0: i have to try it gives
1: you an opportunity to really talk about what you want
0: I, I see, yeah. Well, I can, you know, my biggest failure is a long time ago because I was on track to be a performer. I thought I was going to have a career as a performer and I had a performance injury, an injury in the, in the course of performing, which then there were implications and, you know, kind of screwed up that, you know, career path. And at that time
1: okay hold on lloyd what kind of perform, what kind of performer
0: piano what
1: what were you doing and what was the degree
0: so i was a pianist and i was still in uh, you know my undergraduate degree but i was working as a uh, accompanist so a collaborative with singers mostly although other instrumentalists as well Uh, and so that just means gigging around and going to different pianos that you're not prepared, you know, like every piano is different. The touch is different. Sometimes it's stiffer. Uh, and so I strained a muscle and then that led to complications. And, uh, so, you know, injuries, I mean, performance injuries is the science has been getting better, but at that time there was, weren't a lot of people who were studying uh, performance injuries, you know, just think of sports medicine, but if you're talking about arts medicine, it was pretty, you know, it was rudimentary, at least where I was. If I was in New York city, that would have been a different case maybe. But, uh, so then I had to just sit and take some time off and figure out, you know, this is a life change. And what am I going to do? And that's when I eventually, but it took me a while, decided to go into scholarship and academia rather than the performing arts so that was a big i mean it was uh i don't know it's not a personal failure so much as just an obstacle that happened you know that i had to deal with uh and recover from and figure out uh and of course you know trying to figure out in the midst when you're totally depressed is not (laughs) and you can't think straight that's like another layer to it so you know i had to get through the depression before I could make you know some some good life decisions after that but i'm really happy with what i ended up doing uh because it sort of brings together the performing side the creative side and the bookish analytical side and you know as a teacher you get to stand up in front of people and and be you know pretty performative a lot anyway so <laughs> so that's very rewarding i find
1: Okay, that's a fascinating um, path. And that was when you were in Virginia, was it? Where were you? Nope,
0: that was when I was a little pipsqueak and just uh, in my undergraduate. So then after that, I had to decide to go into grad, I had to go into grad school in musicology and then I got my first job at Virginia.
1: Oh, okay. And so where was that? What school was it?
0: University of Minnesota.
1: Oh, that was still in Minnesota then. Okay. Wow. Okay. (laughs) And so, so your path has been um, kind of complicated up until then. But then since then, when you look at um, at least your online bio, and you look at all the different books that you've done, they all seem very connected. Can you talk a little bit about how you've turned like your favorite success in this process?
0: In my uh, work, you mean? I mean, so... Yeah,
1: in terms of work.
0: Well, I guess just... I'm just glad I stuck to it because it was hard when I was first applying for jobs. And I was really... It was very uncertain to know how accepting different places would be of queer musicology, for instance, or of any of the new musicology, like women's studies, et cetera. So, uh, you know, I, I knew people that were uh, open-minded, progressive, whatever you want to say, but then, you know, you're just sending out your, your uh, job, you know, your materials and CV to, to everyone. You have no idea whether they're conservative or whether they're, you know, what kind of thing. So in a way, it's just like, I had to be true to myself. And just think that, uh, you know, where do I want to end up? I want to end up in a place where I don't have to pretend to be what I'm not, you know, and a place where they would appreciate this kind of work and think it's valid. So that's kind of a long term success that I just am very fortunate that I found a place where they you know like they immediately said oh we think you're great <laughs> like they liked everything i did whereas i didn't have to squeeze myself into <laughs> different you know i didn't have to squeeze myself into a different uh, mold or anything like that so um and that's just you well, know so... and, and
1: the, the interesting go ahead the interesting thing about who you are is that you are sort of a dichotomy of of people you know like i mean you are your 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 work and your passion is really obvious, and it's and it's out there, and it's ex, and, and it's um, um, breaking barriers in terms of what people think because you're breaking barriers on the music side in in that you're bringing the uh, rigors of an academic study and and, and composition to um, ideas that are really popular and and not necessarily. Uh, evident, you know, like Joni Mitchell's career. I <laughs> mean, nobody else could have thought about that. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know, when people think of Joni Mitchell, they don't necessarily think of composer, great composer, you know, and that's the, right. pres- that's the theory that you gave us. Right. And and also if it, and my listeners don't get to meet you, but I've known you for years, and you're, I mean, you're one of the most conservative types that I've ever met, and, you know, in terms of, um, you know, you're quiet, you're, you're relatively, um, you know, you look like a teacher from McGill, <laughs> whatever that would mean. And yet you're, study- <laughs> and yet you're studying um, glamour and, and uh, really um, extreme visions of what it means to be gay in the world. And so how do you balance those dichotomies, you know? Well,
0: I mean, I guess what, what I try to hold the idea of being true to yourself is something that I try to foster in my teaching. In other words, like, I don't want to, I don't want to, I would like to see what people come when they want to study with me. Like, what did they bring? What are their interests? And if I have something to give, how can I foster their own individual search? You know, that's what's important to me instead of Because when I was younger and I was getting advised on what graduate schools to go to, people told me stories of where they wanted to do something, but they went to an Ivy League department where they were not allowed. It was like, no, that, you can't do that, or that you have to wait and write two books first before you get to do what you really want to do. So that just, uh, I mean, isn't that just like, isn't that terrible? That's like a cycle of abuse is what it is, you know. It's like, well, what do you? It is. What is? Talking. What is the life of an intellectual? The life of an intellectual is like you. You're given a gift, and you should be able to, to, to uh, explore that gift and foster it. So, um, so that's the way. I mean, at least in my intellectual explorations, I feel very adventurous. Maybe in my personal. <laughs> maybe when you look at me i i'm not, i'm not flamboyant or anything or bohemian but uh but i try to challenge my students to to think differently and to you know to not you know i mean one of the lessons of gay experience and you know the um an analysis of gay experience is being aware of the norms and how norms can damage you like the norms are invisible often but they're you can feel them you they're pushing you to a certain way and for some people it's harmful you know for a lot of people it's harmful but for some people they they can tell it's like you're pushing me in the wrong way so i feel like that happened that can happen in, in the life of the mind too
1: oh how interesting so that's how um yeah, so so from for you, it's a an intellectual rigor and making sure that people do what they actually are are here to do.
0: Yeah, and be but also be open minded. In other words, like so, there's the norms, but there's also the margins. Like I just think that there's a lot of fun stuff going on at the margins. So that's where, always where I'm drawn to.
1: <laughs> <laughs> actually, you can say that about lots of things. <laughs> It's true. It's true. Um, So, tell me about um, your experience in Canada, and and um, what what are I mean? You chose to be a Canadian. You decided to take on dual citizenship. Why?
0: Well, I was just happy with my position, with my job, and you know, living here in Montreal. Uh, And just then so uh, wanting to be part of the community, wanting to be able to vote, wanting to make a difference, uh, you know, just wanting to participate because, you know, it's like so having gone through the seven years of of uncertainty and job insecurity and not knowing where I was going to end up, once I landed in a place that was very happy, it was like, okay, I don't want to move again. You know, this is it. I I want to put down roots And so that was definitely behind that. And plus, it's just, you know, there's so much to learn culturally uh, in Quebec and in Montreal because, so look, I'm at the, you know, an Anglophone institution in French speaking Quebec in, you know, Canada. (laughs) And so it's like these layers of, you know what I mean? Like layers of politics, layers of cultural exchange. It's just—it's just been fascinating uh, to to kind of get get. Yeah. To-
1: well, Thank I run a podcast called <laughs> I read a podcast called Unapologetically Canadian in Quebec. I mean, <laughs> yes, exactly. And, my,
0: my- <laughs> and I'm glad you're not apologetic.
1: <laughs> no, well, why should I be? It's like, it's fun. <laughs> apologetically Canadians are apologetic for everything we don't have to be apologetic about identity (laughs) but but I mean and you are active in the community and you are um, you do support uh, I mean one of the reasons that I know you is because you've supported our farmers market for years and and, Mm -hmm. um, you are um, you are a a support to people who are doing um, really fun and important work in, in, in the city. So can you talk a little bit about, um, what you, uh, your, your personal life, your, your community side, you know, what, uh, what, what do you love doing outside of work?
0: Well, what I love doing is just, uh, so I live in Verdun, so I love being by the water and I love being by green space and I love just exploring the bike paths and canals and uh islands and seaways (laughs) and just letting my mind kind of uh you know heal itself uh um and then actually it's through my partner in a lot of ways that i have more connection to the community because since he is has been uh, working with community politics and and municipal politics uh, and then going to a lot of um, workshops or consultation sessions that all of a sudden, like, you know, he knew everyone down our streets. <laughs> you know? Like I just, <laughs> I had just been putting my head to the grind, my nose to the grindstone and going to the Metro and going to work. And then all of a sudden, you know, I was like, oh, there's so and so and oh, let's do a green alley. And let's, you know, green our alley and meet all these people. And there's the cat lady, who you know, rescues cats. And so, so that was just a revelation. I have to say, I cannot take credit for that. It really is, you know, been, uh, my partner has been that kind of involved. And so I've been, it's been very beneficial for me to get involved through him as well. Uh, so yeah, but you chose to make to get it feel like a name. Not
1: neighbor. all partners get involved in projects.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know,
1: you, you chose to get involved. Yeah, yeah. You, you may not have let the project, but you actually have, you're always there. You're always working. I mean, it's a, you, you, you do participate.
0: Well, thanks. You're very, Thank you. <laughs> you're very, uh, you're giving me good strokes here. <laughs>
1: Uh, I think it's awesome. I mean, it's uh, a. Was, was there anything that I didn't ask you that you really wanted to mention? Because we didn't talk about several of your works, and we didn't talk as much about identity as I was thinking we were going to. Was there anything that uh, well, you there's one to thing I to?
0: do. I do want to mention just that uh, since I mentioned I'm in the administration at the in the School of Music at McGill University, is the that there um, a lot of music schools. In North America, are going through a kind of a rethink, or you could even say an identity crisis. And this was brought home to us by a lot of our students this summer, uh, with the Black Lives Matter uh, movement and you know the different demonstrations that were happening. And of course, it was intensified by the COVID crisis as well, uh, because people were sort of trapped in you know. Uh, this the cybersphere you know and seeing all this stuff happening and wanting to get involved but but feeling kind of restricted and so it's like things that i've been thinking about for much of my uh, work career in terms of identity and diversity and being open-minded and representation of people who haven't been included in history we're coming home to roost in a way like you know having to do with you know, going, going to my, you know, going to my work, and like, is, are the people out in society reflected in the people in my work? And so, and also, like, who do we teach? Who do do we put on our orchestra programs? You know, does it reflect the, you know, people of color? Does it, do we talk about people's sexual identity? So this is something that uh, a lot of schools are going through, and we're kind of going through that right now, too. And it's, I find it very Uh, exciting but also I feel like I'm hitting uh, I'm really glad that I'm the age I am and I have the experience I have in order to deal with this because it is very challenging uh, because it's not easy to figure out you know once you've been trained a certain way uh, and sometimes the norms like I mentioned have been sort of baked into you you know like oh this is just this is the best music ever and it's hard to realize, well, wait a minute, is that me speaking or or have I been sort of like pushed into this way of thinking? And um, so in response to some of the demands of the students who, are, who seem to be saying, well, look, do we look like a 21st century school? Or what do we need to do to try and open up what we do? And a lot of it has to do with identity. So... I find it interesting that the stuff I've been thinking about intellectually is now intersecting with uh, that aspect of leadership at the school.
1: Yeah. And, and that actually is a really challenging moment in time because we are also dealing with a, a pandemic and even pulling in, music mu- musicians uh, individually have also been suffering this year because it's really hard for them to get work right now. I mean, yeah. you're not even I'm not even talking about the academic world, but Yeah. The, the our our society is also suffering because we can't even the people who are already performing or 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 have jobs yeah. in music or in any of the performing arts have had to almost take a hiatus for the year. Yes. You know? I mean, not been, quite, but but almost.
0: Well, it's, it's true. It's very deep. It goes very deep. And this affects students, you know, let, who oftentimes will, that's part of their income is being able to, you know, do these uh, you know, performances as they're going to school. And then that is just taken out from under them. So it's like, aside from all the other uncertainties, there's that added level of anxiety. And I don't know. I mean, um, it didn't hit me as hard being, you know, on the academic side rather than the performing side. But I look at my colleagues in performance and they're, they just, there were huge, huge uh, emotional, you know, just like what do I do now? What is it going to look like? How long is it going to take if it gets back to normal? So you're right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and, and so to change an institution, which is already like changing a big ship, while you're also facing such society, society as itself is almost in an identity crisis now too. Yep. You know, in terms of how do we, how do we take what we are, the, some of what we've learned this year about inclusion and bringing new voices forward, and as all of us are trying to figure out how best to bring our own voices forward. I mean, everybody is in, sort of in it together. And I th- and I mean we've also I mean on the ecological side, we've also got the the fact that people haven't been traveling, which has been great for the earth, okay. <laughs> but not so great for our human psychology yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and connections.
0: Wow, I just love how you so, put.
1: Um, how are
0: you? I love how you put that. Uh, bringing new voices forward, and we're all in it together. Those are just really great things to keep in mind.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, that was your, that's what I got from what you said. So <laughs> we're, we're playing off each other. <laughs> thank you very much. Um, I, <laughs> I didn't have any other questions. I'm really, really happy to um, be able to, to, to uh, present your work and to get to know you. I will put some links to some of your books into the show notes. Great. Um, and uh, thank you very much for your time.
0: Thanks so much, Tracy. I look forward to seeing you in person. When we can do it.
1: Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to Unapologetically Canadian. This episode was brought to you by citygardeners.ca, the gardening club for city gardeners.